Hey, I want to uh, uh, just give you guys and ask you guys to join with me in praying over the next couple weeks. Um, we're going to be doing a series for the next three Sundays uh, talking about giving. And uh, before you all decide not to come to church for the next couple weeks, I'm going to ask you instead to come to church and I'm going to ask you to be silent assassins. And I'm going to ask you to, as you sit in the church services in the next few weeks, to pray during the service that people's hearts would be touched. Because this is probably one of the toughest topics that you ever talk about uh, within church. We're really weird about sex and we're really weird about money uh, inside the church. Uh, But here's the thing that you need to know and here's why I'm going to ask you to spend, literally, I'm going to ask you to pray every single day from now until the series is over. Uh, Right now, in our giving, uh, we are down a million dollars from where we were two years ago. In other words, what our giving in a normal year two years ago was to where we are today, we're down a million dollars. Some of you that have been around for a while, you know we've already gone through two layoffs. Uh, and the problem we have right now is, is that as you and I came through summer, uh, you and I gave worse this summer than we have in past summers. And as we came to the fall, we never picked it up again. And so we're not only a million down, but now we're tracking below that. So if, if we can't have this conversation, if we don't talk about this, then we're going, to be, we're going to be in a tough, 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 tough way financially. And uh, so I'm just going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to be part of it. Uh, typical of almost every church. Uh, anybody know how many people, what percentage of people in the church typically tithe? Anybody know? About 10 to 12 percent which means that 90% of us choose to know what the Scripture says about giving and to live disobediently. So I'm going to ask you to pray that our people would change their hearts about that. That They would say, no, 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 I'm going to simply obey what Scripture says about this topic. I will not live in perpetual disobedience on this topic. Something that may be a little bit interesting for you is that, uh, did you know that that if literally if just... 10% of our church, in other words, 10 of the 90% who don't give, if just 10% of our church decided to tithe, we would not only be able to restore every single staff person that was laid off, we would be able to pay every single uh, bill, we'd have every single one of our budgets back to 100%, we'd restore every ministry that we've uh, lost in the church, and we literally would have enough money left over that we'd have the down payment for the new building if 10% of our church decided to be obedient to this topic. So I'm just going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray. And I'm going to be bold enough in this particular room because you guys are in the core to ask you that if you're not tithing, I cannot think of a better moment. I can't think of a better moment in the life of your church than to say, I'm going to choose now to be obedient. And I know, I know we're all saying, hey, the economy's bad and everything's tough. Here's the interesting part. In the past, we've gone to sister churches and churches in the area and said, how are you doing economically? And they've all said, hey, we're doing tough and things are not going so well. This last round as we went to sister churches and churches in the area said, how are you doing? All of them, their giving's up. And so here we are in the moment. All of our sister churches are being more faithful, being more obedient, and you and I are being hesitant. And it's interesting, we went and kind of looked a little bit at the giving, and what we found was it wasn't that we had lost some families, maybe tithing families who had moved, that wasn't the case. 
We'd look to try to see if there were families that had lost their jobs. That's real easy to see because they used to tithe, and all of a sudden the tithe goes to zero, and, you know, that's fair. That's what you'd expect when you lose your job. That's not what's happening. What we're finding is happening is that people who used to give $100 a month are now giving $60 a month. So unless everybody in our church is on commission, then we are simply becoming more cautious and more tentative in our obedience, which is a really bad answer for the children of God. So I'm just going to ask you to pray, 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 pray that you and I come up with a different answer in the next 30 days together. So, matter of fact, I'm going to ask us to do that right now. Let me, can we just stand together real quick? And I want to ask us to pray that God will change our hearts, change our church about this particular topic. Dear Lord Jesus, I, I simply come to you, and I'm just going to ask that you would soften our hearts. It is so incredible how much value we place in a piece of paper with green ink on it, and how tightly we clench it in our hands, and how we harden our hearts and we refuse to obey you in, in this topic. We, we would obey you in every other, and yet this is the one that stumbles and trips us up. It says something about how deeply we love our wallets. And God, I'm just going to ask that that would not be cornerstone. That our culture would be a culture of generosity and of saying, I can't wait to give to the kingdom. I I would leverage every extra penny I had to see my neighbors know Jesus Christ, my children hear about God. I, I can't wait to see the kingdom go forward. And so, God, I'm going to ask that you would just raise up prayer warriors in this room, that we would sit on this on Sunday and we would pray for our neighbors and we'd pray for those that are in the pews around us and we would just watch your Holy Spirit move and soften hearts and change the culture of our church to a culture of generosity and a culture of obedience. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you, guys. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I think you guys got through, if I, was, if I heard right, through verse 9. Does that sound right? Yes, no. Yes, that sounds right. Okay, so at the end of the day, if we got through Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, then, then we all decided that we are saved by grace. Okay, is that showing up on the board? Okay, they were saved by grace and not by what? works. Why is this a big deal? Matter of fact, I'm going to suggest to you that this verse is a verse you should underline in your Bible. You should take it in the back, I think, of your Bible and write this verse down. Saved by grace, not by works. Because this is literally a linchpin verse in the Christian faith. Why? What is so powerful about that discussion and about that idea? Saved by grace, not by works. What do we think? Can you hear me? Oh, <laughs> because it takes man totally out of it. It's all about what Jesus did. It's not anything we can do. It's everything that Christ did for us. Okay. It takes man totally out of it. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. <laughs> I would think if it was up to man, um, no one would go to heaven. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If it was up to man... No one goes to heaven. Why? Why does no one go to heaven by works? 
Why does no one go to heaven by works? Now, guys, this is a huge question because here's the deal. Look, look, look. Every time you talk to your neighbor, every time you talk to your friend and you say, hey, you ought to come to church with me. And they go, oh, I don't know. I don't think I like church and blah, 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 blah. And, and you go, what are you thinking? What are you thinking as far as you and God and eternity? And here's their answer. I'm a good person. And what they're saying in that moment, think about this. What they're saying in that moment is I do enough good things. I do enough good works that somehow that balances out whatever bad I have. And so when I get to heaven, you know, he's going to put my life on a scale and, and I'm, I'm going to be okay because my good deeds, my good works outweigh my bad works. And so I'm okay. Um, yeah, it says that um, our righteousness is, is as filthy rags. And when uh, the man came to Jesus and said, um, good, he says, why do you call me good? He says, no one is good but the Father. Yeah. And so he, he knew ultimately there is only one perfection, one good, and that's, right. and that's God. So here's the thing. Isaiah says, and it's a great verse, all of our good works, the best things that you and I have ever done, okay, when you compare them to a holy God... Okay, what does holy mean? 100% righteous. Holy. So and maybe, maybe a good way of thinking of this is, if, if, you, if you had an immune deficiency, and someone said, okay, we're going to put you in a sterile room, how many... How many uh, What's a good disease? Uh, tuberculosis. How many tuberculosis germs are okay in your sterile room? How many? None. So holy means everything, everything in him is pure and righteous. And in him, how much darkness, how much evil, how much sin is in God? None. None. Which means he can allow how much sin in his presence. The same way, how many germs can that person with immune deficiency allow in? How many tuberculosis germs are okay? None. Okay, so, okay. If I bring you a rag and I say to you, look, I wash this rag in, in Tide. And, and, and it, it, never mind the fact that, that it, someone who had tuberculosis was sneezing in this rag before I washed it in Tide, I'm pretty sure it's 99% tuberculosis-free. If you have immune deficiency, are you? how interested are you in a 99% tuberculosis-free rag? How interested? None. So now you come to this passage in Isaiah, and here's what it says. All of your good deeds... The best things that you've ever done. The things that even in your heart you felt absolutely pure about. But let's just be honest. Even as we do the things that we call pure, there's always a little bit of us in there, isn't there? Hey, why did you give to India? Because it made me feel good. And he says, look, look, look. You may have had 99% pure motives. But if you even had the... And so Isaiah says, your best works are like filthy rags to a holy God. 
The best things you and I have ever, ever, ever done. The purest things that you and I have ever, ever, ever done. Because he is holy and he is tuberculosis free. And because you and I have never done a work that didn't have at least a little something of self in it. Are like filthy rags to God. And so if you and I try to work our way to heaven. You and I can never get there. Never. Because our best, and guys, here's the honest part is, you and I haven't always been at our best. Some of the rags you and I have gotten in our life are really ugly, aren't they? Some of our rags are filthy. And it's why, Isaiah says, your best works are like dirty rags to God. Which is why works will never, 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 never get you to heaven. Does it make sense so far? Here's why this is scary. How many religions are are there out there that say, look, if you want to get to heaven, follow our rules. What does Buddhism say? If you want to get to heaven, follow our rules. What does what does, uh, Muslims say? If you want to get to heaven, follow our rules. What do Mormons say? If you want to get to heaven, follow our rules. If you, what did Jehovah Witnesses say? If you want to get to heaven, follow our rules. What do Hindus say? If you want to get to heaven, do what? Follow our rules. And every single one of those religions, and here's, here's the interesting thing. The identifying mark of a man-made religion is always works. The minute you have, you talk to anybody about a religious thing and they say, follow this set of rules and you will be okay with God, you immediately know it is a man-made system. It is not biblical because works never get anyone to heaven. Ever. Ever. I don't care how sincere you are. I don't care how invested you are. Being a good person has never, ever, ever, ever gotten anyone to heaven. And it is the identifying mark of a man-made religion. For by grace... What do we say grace was? A gift. God doing for me something I don't deserve. And what you need to know is the cross was always a gift. Here's the deal. Think about this, guys. Think think. If you and I can be good enough for heaven, then what is Jesus doing on a cross? I mean, th- I mean, this is crazy. If if you and I can be a good religious person and help enough little old ladies across the street and give enough money to poor people, if you and I can be good enough, why is Jesus dying on a cross? That's insanity. Why isn't Jesus just coming and, and being the next Gandhi? And showing us a better way to live. If you can be a good person and go to heaven. Because the answer in what Jesus taught all of his ministry. Is that you will never be good enough. You will always fall short. And there has to be a price paid. To take care of sin. And every man made religion says, no, 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 the cross of Jesus doesn't mean a lot. The cross, Jesus is just an example. Jesus was just a good person. Follow our rules and go to heaven. And it is the identifying mark of a cult. 
when it's rules-based. Christianity says, you don't make it to heaven without a Savior. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you do it. So let me ask you this question. If you and I aren't trying to get to heaven by being a good person, then why, are we trying to, then why do we do good things? We tried to answer this a couple weeks ago. If you and I aren't trying to go to heaven by being a good person, then why do good things once you're a Christian? It's an expression of love for God. There you go. See, you, you and I do what we do for Christ, not because we're trying to earn it. Because we're trying to thank for it. We're trying to say, thank you for what you did for me. And I couldn't do enough good things to say thank you enough. Not, I'm not earning it. I'm just thanking you for it. And it's why we live for him. Okay. So again, guys, it, it is a keynote linchpin verse of Christianity that you and I lean 100% into a Savior and 0% into ourselves. You and I do not depend on anything we do right. But here's the cool part about this, guys. It, it's the part that some of us don't like, but here's the cool part. If I'm not saved by being a good person, then can really bad people become Christians? Think about this again. If, if, if I'm not trying to work my way to heaven, and if I'm not getting to heaven by piling up more good things than I have bad things, can a really bad person go to heaven? How? By grace. By having a Savior. The same way that little five-year-old who probably hasn't done a whole lot of bad things goes to heaven. By asking a Savior in their heart. By grace. Which, and here's the wonder of it, guys, which means you don't know a person who is beyond grace. The worst person you know, the most vile person in this world, is not beyond the cross and is not beyond a Savior. Which is pretty cool. Could, you, could, Judas, could Judas have repented and become a Christian? Hmm. There is no human being beyond grace. I don't believe he did repent. There is no, there's nothing there scripturally to say that he truly repented. I think he regretted. I don't know that he repented. You know the difference, right? So I can regret doing something wrong without repenting of it. And I think he regretted. But if he had repented, you don't think Jesus would have taken that to the cross too? In an instant. In an instant, he would have said, Judas, I forgive you. Okay? By grace you are saved, not by works. Okay? Did we have a hand go up? Yes. We terrified somebody. Okay. I just have a comment about that. That recently I thought about the prisoner hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And because I was struggling with that. Sure. And somebody said to me, that even at that moment, because he showed his heart to Jesus, he, in the last minutes of his life, went to heaven. Yeah. The prisoner, the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus is an unbelievably powerful story. Because, guys, think about this. When they're hanging on the cross, remember what he says to the other guy hanging on the cross. Remember, the other guy was kind of teasing Jesus and, oh, if you're the son of God, jump down off the cross, let us see, all that good stuff. That prisoner, remember, he turns to him and says, dude, stop, stop criticizing Jesus. We deserve to be here, right? So in other words, he's admitting, 
this cross fits my life. I, my life and everything I've done have brought me to this moment. I deserve a cross. Okay? So, in that moment when he repents, how many good works... He's already admitted he's worth being killed over his life. How many good works is he going to do from that day forward to earn his Christianity? None. He cannot do one thing to earn his faith. And yet Jesus says, today you'll be with me. Okay? So if there's anything that would speak to grace, the thief on the cross speaks to grace. Okay. Yeah. How, how do you know if you've gone from regret to repent? Okay. Yeah. Regret says, uh, I ate that piece of pie I wish I hadn't. Okay? That's regret. Um, repentance says, I shouldn't have eaten that piece of pie. It was wrong, and I won't do it again. Repentance is, and here's the easy definition of repentance. Repentance says, this is what I did. And repentance says, and I turn my back on what I did to do it differently from now on. Okay? That's true repentance. True repentance says, I acknowledge that what I was doing was wrong. And I will turn my back on the wrong. And I will not do it again. Okay? So repentance is someone who comes and says, look, dude, I lied. I lied. And here's my promise. I won't lie to you again. It's repentance. And that's not to say that we do it perfectly and that we never do. He's just saying, I'm telling you, my commitment is not to do that again. My, I am turning my back on what I did. And I am heading this way with all my strength. That's repentance. Okay? It's not a promise of perfection. It's a promise of direction. I was doing this. I was behaving this way. I was sleeping with my boyfriend. I was getting drunk. Whatever that is. And I am turning my back. And I am now going this way. That's repentance. Okay? It's not perfection. It's direction. Great question. Yep. I, I like to think that uh, God was teaching this uh, way back at the beginning in, in the Garden of Eden when... Uh, Adam and Eve put on fig leaves, uh, kind of an act of religion, uh, trying to do works uh, to cover up their nakedness. And, and God quickly uh, brought to their attention that that was unacceptable. And he sacrificed the lambs and, mm. and showed his grace by covering them with the, yeah. the lambs. Yeah. It's interesting in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. God's immediate response was something has to, what did he do? He clothed them in what? The skin of an animal. So God's immediate response to sin was something has to die for this. And isn't it interesting that they were then clothed in the skin of the sacrifice? Just like you and I are to be clothed in Christ. Isn't that interesting? All right, let's keep going. You guys are slowing me down. All right. <clears throat> Shemini. No wonder we're not making it through. All right. Uh, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. What does that mean? For you and I are God's workmanship. What does that mean that you're God's workmanship? Raise hands. Come on. What does it mean that I am God's workmanship? 
We're created in God's image. Um, maybe a little. What does it mean that you are God's workmanship? He uniquely formed us. Uh, maybe a little. <laughs> My translation, the message actually, I think, explains it pretty well for me. Okay. It says, no, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Hmm. It's pretty good. I like the work we had better be doing part. All right, so think about this, okay? Think of a big block of granite. And when the artist starts to work on the block of granite, the block of granite now becomes his workmanship. And he has in his mind what he is going to form. Well, that's horrible. All right. That was a bad artist, bad artist. He has in his mind... Hey, that was much better. All right. He has in his mind what he's going to form, okay, out of that block, okay? That block is what he is crafting, and he has already decided what image he's going to make out of that block, his workmanship. What does it mean then when he says, you, you are the block of granite. You are God's workmanship, What's he trying to say to you and me? He is making us into what he wants us to be. Hmm. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I like that. But, but let me, let me, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me help, help me out here. He's making us into what he wants us to be. So let me just ask you a question. When's the last time you prayed this and said, God, what are you making me into? What, what is it that you, in other words, why, why was I created? Why am I here on earth? And what is it you always hoped I would be? More like Christ. More like Christ. Okay, and I get that. And, 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 and that's absolutely true when you say more like Christ. Because every single one of these, every one of these craftsmanship, workmanships, is going to show an image of Jesus somehow. But there's also this uniqueness that says, hey, you're wired a little different than I am, and the opportunities you have in life are a little different than my opportunities. Your family's different than mine. And God didn't put you in that family by accident, and God didn't give you the job that he gave you by accident. You are his workmanship, and he was crafting you to be something that's going to look a little different even than me, although both of us will look like Christ. So when's the last time you said to God, what is it that you are making me to be? Which, If that's true, okay, I'm just throwing this out. Then when you got sick, was that really bad? Or is it possible that was part of God's workmanship to teach you, inform you? When your parents died and you thought it was 10 years too early and you said, why am I having to live on my own now? And I, I thought I'd have my mother and my father that much longer. And was that bad? Or is it possible? I mean, is it possible that was God's 
workmanship. And that there were lessons you would never learn. There were things you would never grow into. There were things you would never understand if he had left them here. And the very things that you and I cursed God about and were frustrated and angry with him for, is it possible that was his chisel chipping away at the granite to make you and I his workmanship? That you and I would ultimately do the very thing that we were created in this earth to do. Is that possible? And is it possible that some of the things and some of the unfairnesses and some of the injustices of our lives that we've been the most angry with God about were his workmanship? To chip away the excess of our life. To smooth out rough spots. To work away anger and to chisel away pride and to teach me not to be so self-sufficient, instead to be God-sufficient. Because at the end of the day, you and I are His workmanship. And you ready? I'll have the next phrase. Created for good works. You came into this world, God, 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 you came in this world not to be the president of Intel. You came, you came into this world. Not to invent the hula hoop. You came into this world for the good works that Christ had planned for you. Which then all of a sudden means, well, maybe where I live does matter. And maybe if I obey in that topic and don't disobey, it does matter. Because I was created to do God's good work here on earth. Throw another one. Every time we say to our kids, you can be anything you want to be. Didn't we just lie? Didn't we? When we say to our children, you can be anything you want to be. Didn't we just lie? I, I'm, I'm never going to play in the NBA, let's be honest. And I'm, I'm really too old now, right? I mean, it's done. I, I don't care how bad I want that. Didn't we just lie? And let's be honest. You know, you've, you've got some little kid that's never going to be over 4 or 3. They're not going to play in the NBA. Right? And you've you got a kid that's really, really bad at math. They're probably never going to be a great scientist. So every time we say to them, you can be anything you want. Didn't we just deceive? And maybe send them on a whole path of frustration for their lives. And maybe even anger at God when they don't get to be the scientist or don't get to play in the NBA. How much more powerful to say to our children, you need to figure out who God created you to be. Because when you figure that out and you do that, when you figure out what God's workmanship in you is, you will be thrilled. So pray, pray, pray that God would tell you what he hoped you would do. When's the last time you prayed and said, Hey God, what did you create me to do? Isn't that interesting? And I'm going to tell you the one of the most selfish things we do with our lives is we say, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to be who I want to be. And I'm not going to work that job unless that job makes me happy. 
And I'm not going to live there unless living there makes me happy. If you live that selfishly, you will never be the workmanship of God. You should have said, hey God, do you want me to live there? And do you want me to take that job? Are there things I'll learn working for that horrible supervisor? Are there things I'll learn living on that block that I would have never picked for myself that will allow you to chisel away at the rough spots of my life and teach me to be who I need to be for you? See, you get get that all the rough spots of your life are the you that's still left in you. Do we have a question? Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. I was going to say I relate a lot to the workmanship of how you mentioned with the um, block of granite or like a thing of clay because before I found God, you know, uh, if you don't have the tools of the word or you don't have um, the idea of uh, a savior helping you out, you're limited in your tools and your ability to sculpt that. But when you have tools and the word that you can rely on, you know, that you, you're able to know what to peel off and ultimately, you know, when you have those tools that are able to allow you to sculpt that yeah. uh, that thing that, you, you know, in, in, the, in the end, it would look more godly or hmm. more, more a better structure or a better molding than someone who wouldn't have the tools. Okay. And I love what you just said. I'm only going to change one thing, one phrase in what you said, and simply is this. I don't want the tools. I want the tools in God's hands. See, here's the mistake I think we make all the time, guys. You and I, all of the time, have this argument with God. Hey, God, hey, God, hey, God, hey, God, hey, God, hey, God. Okay, so let's, let's change this. Okay? We keep running up to God, and let's make it a painting this time. Okay? And we keep running to God and go, God, God, you're painting that wrong. You're painting that wrong. It's, it's, it's horrible. I, I don't like what you're doing with my life. I don't like what you're doing with my kids. I don't like what you're doing, but you're painting it wrong. And we reach out, we grab the brushes, and we say, here, there's the deal. I'm going to paint for a little while. I'm going to get the painting back on the right track, and then I'll think about trusting you with the brushes again. Isn't that exactly what we do? You're painting it wrong, God. Have you ever watched any of those painting shows on TV? Where those guys are painting and they're going, and they're painting and they're putting stuff on. And I'm just going to tell you, every time they do it, it looks like a mess. You know, they're going, oh, look at the big tree, the big tree, the big tree. And they're they're painting and going, that does not look like a tree. It looks like a black blob. It's just horrible looking. And somehow, I don't know how they do that, but somehow as they just keep doing this and putting here, and all of a sudden you're going, that's the most incredible mountain range I've ever seen. How did he do that? Because he's a master painter. And what, and what you and I are tempted to do is run up to the master painter and go, God, God, look, look, you're, you're painting my life wrong and you didn't give me the right job and you didn't give me the right spouse and, and my kids are idiots, could you just kill them? You know, we've got all those things, right? <laughs> and we try to take the brush out of God's hands and fix it. And God, here's what you got to get. We're like five-year-olds running up to the master painter and saying, I don't like your workmanship. Let me paint for a while and I'll get us on the bright track, God. And then maybe, maybe, maybe I'll think about trusting you again. How absurd is that? Which I'm just going to say, guys, the mo- when, when you and I get this concept, when you and I figure this part out, we're going to stop arguing with God. Because here's what we do right now. We look at a verse in the Bible and we go, God, that's a stupid verse. If I was God, I wouldn't put that verse in. 
God, if I was God, I'd let me live with my boyfriend. You know, God, God, if I was God, you know, I, I, and whatever it is, if I was God and and we argue, because here's what we're saying, God, I I don't get it. I don't understand it. And there's a bunch of big black blobs in the Bible and, 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 and the painting's not turning out the way that I want the painting to turn out. And I haven't gotten married yet. And I, and we grab the brushes. And then we wonder why our lives are so messed up. And why the painting is so ugly. Because five-year-olds have been painting. And when you and I figure this out, okay, when you and I, we would put the brushes back in the master painters. And when you and I go, I am God's workmanship. And I don't, I don't understand some of the rules in the Bible. And I don't know why that verse is there. But he's the master painter and I am his workmanship. And I am not going to argue about anything. If he says, put a little yellow there, I'm going to put a little yellow there. He says, he says oh, I'm, going to, I'm putting some, put it there. God, you're the master painter. And I will simply, I, I'll obey every verse I don't understand because at the end, I want this thing in my life to be a masterpiece. And I don't want my fingerprints on any of it. And you and I, our hunger for the Bible would change because we suddenly say, I just want to know the next verse I need to obey, not the next verse I need to argue. I just want to know the next verse I need to obey. And we'd look at verses that we didn't like and struggled with, and we'd say, I, I, you're the master painter. I, I, if I were God, I wouldn't have written it, but I'll do it. Because I know that every time I put my silly little five-year-old hands into the mix, I mess up the workmanship. And guys, think, think about this. Okay? And, and this ought to terrify you. Back to the block of granite. Let's let's just for a second imagine. All right, who knows? God was going to make this huge sculpture of you. I mean, this huge, unbelievable masterpiece in your life of the image of Jesus. In other words, He had plans that you you were you were going to change lives for God. You were going to take unbelievable territory for the kingdom. But somewhere you saw a verse and you said, I hate that verse. I'm not going to deal with my pride because I, you know what? I like my pride. I'm proud that I'm proud. And I'm just not going to deal with it. You realize that when you and I do that, when you and I resist the workmanship of the master, it's like putting a crack in the masterpiece, in the workpiece. And so that even if later on you and I go, here, God, look, I'm sorry, take it back. Guess what? Now the sculpture's smaller. Because you left him left to work with. And that ought to terrify us. And we ought to say, God, no, no, I don't, I don't, I never want those tools in my hand. And I never want control of my life. And I never want to tell you how to do this. You're the master worker, and I want to give you as much material as possible to do your workmanship with. Guys, that's not to say you still can't create something pretty cool. I'm just telling you, when you and I resist, and when you and I allow sin to be in our lives, and when you and I rebel against God, the workmanship becomes smaller, and Jesus becomes less visible in your life. You don't want the tools. You don't want control. And you don't want disobedience in your life about anything biblical. 
He's right. I'm wrong. He's the master. I'm the material. Okay. Another one real quick. I'm just going to make a comment that um, I've been a Christian for 35 years, but I just had this experience in the last 10, 10 weeks of my life where I thought I was doing what God had planned for me and and that I was walking in his will and he still tripped me up and made me realize that I was wandering away even in my willingness hmm. to serve him and be mm-hmm. um, everything that he wanted me to be. I was still taking back that control. Hmm. And I wasn't a five-year-old taking the, the paintbrushes. Mm-hmm. I was, a, you know, a well-versed but still maturing Christian that needed to be corrected. Yeah. And change the sculpture of my life. Yeah. You know, so even as we, we don't even have to be rebellious or openly rebellious. I, I lead a Bible study and I tell my women all the time, God does not need our help. Right. <laughs> so so in, in, in the moment, we need to move on, but if you, if you were going to give me one word to describe what it was that you had, in other words, what was the thing that caused that place in your life that was, un, was it stubbornness? Was it a blind spot in your life that you hadn't been willing to examine? Give, give me one word that you say, this is, this is what was keeping me from allowing that part of my life to be under the control of Christ. What, would, what, what word would you use? Do you have one? I would have to use the word dislocation because I had my hip replaced and I dislocated it at a Bible study. And I was the first person to ever do that Okay. for this surgeon. And so I had to see where I disconnected or dislocated from God. Okay. Okay, so a distance. There was a distance created there. All right. All right, let's keep going because we're, you're slowing me down again. All right. Uh, verse 11. Therefore, remember. How much time do we have? Where are we at? Oh, tw- plenty of time. All right, here we go. Therefore, remember that you formerly who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Okay, so real quick, just to make sure we're on the same track. Who were the uncircumcised? Gentiles, okay? So in that culture, in that time, males basically did not get circumcised. It was not normative. And basically, the most of the then known world would have been considered uncircumcised. Another term that would have been synonymous with them would have been Gentiles. It was anybody because the only people who were really practicing circumcision during this time and during this culture were the Hebrews, were, was Israel. So scripturally, when it says uncircumcised, it just means anybody who was a Gentile, anybody who was not Jewish, and circumcision simply means the Jewish people. Okay, and uh, and he says here we're talking about that which is done with the hands, and the re- only reason he says that is later on he's going to talk about circumcision of the heart, that you and I have some things that need to get cut away from our hearts, and so he's trying to just be real clear here and say, guys, we're talking about the physical experience of circumcision. So he says that which is done with the hands. Okay, so here we go. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope 
and without God in the world. And probably the key word you just want to grab real quick there is that word separated, because that word separated in the Bible is synonymous with the word death. Okay? So when the Bible says, hey, you were dead, it means you were separated. Because anything that separates me from God, the Bible considers spiritual death. Okay? So separated meant death for them. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. How? How did you get near? Well, you got near by doing good things. You got near by going to church. You got near by being baptized. You got near by confessing to the priest. You got near by taking communion. You got near how? By the blood of Christ. By the sacrifice paid for you. Which is why any faith that does not emphasize the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins is missing it. Because you cannot come near to God unless you come through the blood. Verse 14. For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace who has made the two one... And has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create for himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Okay, here's the question. He says, all right, as Jesus dies on the cross, he makes one new man out of the two. How many are confused? He says there's two men here that we're talking about. Jesus is going to make them become one, one new man out of the two. What were the two men? Jew and Gentile. He says when Jesus dies on the cross, he makes those two things one. What is the one new man? The church. Because in the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. In the church, we are all the children of God. Okay? So the two became one. But here's the other part of it. How does a Jew become a Christian? By acknowledging Christ. How does a Gentile become a Christian? By acknowledging Christ. The two became one called the church. Okay? Here's the interesting thing. Is the church perfect? Come on. The church is perfect, right? What are some of the things the church does wrong? We don't tithe. Hey, thank you, Jesus. I will pay you afterwards for that one. Thank you, Jesus. All right. What else does the church do wrong? Ah, let's just talk about present. What does the church do wrong in the present? Huh? Where do we pass judgment? We gossip. What else does the church do wrong? Hypocrites. Sin. We look at verses in the Bible and we just go, no, no thanks, God. Stick it up your nose. Yeah. Ain't going to do that one. Huh? We have the audacity to what? 
Break rules. Oh, create rules. Okay. Which is actually breaking rules when you create rules to break rules, to create them. Okay. What else? What else do we do wrong? Okay, probably good enough list. You want to hear the interesting thing, guys? You're right. All of that's wrong about the church. Guess who's the church? Us. Us. You and I are the church. And therefore, if the church is ever going to be different than that, then guess who has to be different? Us. Us. Everything that is wrong with the church is us. It's every place that you and I don't look like Jesus is what's wrong with the church. Because you and I are the church. It's an interesting thing because the minute you get mad at the church, you're only getting mad at yourself. Because you are the church. You are the church. Matter of fact, and here's an interesting thing. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Jesus loved the church and laid down his life for her. And here's what I'm going to suggest to you. That anything that your Lord loves, you need to love too. Warts and all. How, how many... How, let me just explain. How, how many of you have perfect children? Okay, no grandparents, you can't raise your hand. Parents, how many of you have perfect children? Do you love them? Warts and all? Yeah. And I'm just going to suggest to you that God calls you and me to love the church. To love each other. Warts and all. And if for no other reason, if for no other reason, because he loves the church. Warts and all. Let me give you this story and we'll be done tonight. Some of you have heard this. Years ago when we planted the church, there was a family that came with us, Brent and Sonia Richardson. Anybody remember Brent and Sonia? Okay. Oh, wow. Very cool. All right. So Brent and Sonia Richard came with, came with us, and their daughter's name was Abby. And uh, Abby had a little dolly whose name was Baby. And uh, Baby was gross. Uh, Abby had uh, taken Baby to places that Baby should have never gone. And Baby was dirty, and Baby was missing one of its Baby's button eyes. Abby would carry baby around in her mouth, and so it was all slobbery. I mean, baby was gross. But the thing was, Abby loved baby with all of her heart. I mean, she couldn't sleep if she didn't have baby. She didn't want to go anywhere if she didn't have baby. Abby loved baby. One day, Abby lost baby. And she was heartsick. I mean, she was heartsick. So guess what Brent and Sonia did? Any guesses? They started, yeah, they said, we'll buy you a new one. To which Abby said, absolutely not. But they said, look, there's the same doll. The same doll is in, in, and, and baby was already missing an eye and baby, and baby was gross. And Abby would have nothing to do with a new baby. It had to be the original baby. So now guess what Brent and Sonia did? They got a new baby and ripped its eye off, yeah. No, no. You are ruining my story. Brent and Sonia began to search that house high and low. 
And they didn't find baby the first 24 hours. And so the next day, guess what they did? They searched their house high and low. Now, here's the thing you need to know. Brent and Sonia did not love baby. Brent and Sonia thought baby was kind of gross. And it would actually be a good idea to replace baby. Why were they searching high and low? Because Abby loved baby. And on the third day, they found baby. Baby was in a, uh, on the front of Abby's little bike. She had a plastic basket that had a lid, and she'd put baby down in the basket and put the three days searching for an eyeless, gross, slobbery doll. Because, 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 you ready? Because Abby loved baby. I'm just going to suggest to you and I, as tough as the church is and as many mistakes as the church has and as many warts as we have, you and I are called to love the church. The church. Christians who stumble and Christians who don't behave right and Christians who maybe aren't always the kindest and Christians... You and I are called to love the church. Because, because, you ready? Because our Savior loves the church. Which means you and I should be willing to spend our time chasing after baby. Chasing after our fellow Christian. Apologizing when we do wrong. Asking forgiveness when we sin. Carrying our own weight. Because our Savior loves the church. And when you love somebody, you love what they love. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just we simply come before you, and man, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how it challenges our lives. And God, I, I just think tonight, as we leave this place, if we if we don't remember anything else that we said together, we, there are some of us in this room that needed to hear. I am not my own workmanship. This is not my life, and I don't get to plan it, and I, and I don't get to make myself in my own image. And the best thing I could do would be surrender the brushes to God, surrender the chisels to God, and just say, look, you're the master craftsman. Make me what you always dreamed I would be. Because every time I start chiseling, every time I start painting, it gets ugly. And I refuse, I refuse to be the five-year-old telling the master. God, there's some of us in here tonight that had become frustrated with the church and frustrated with the people in the church. And we just needed to hear, our Savior loves the church. And when you love somebody, you love what they love. And we need, we just needed to Hear again that sometimes there are people in our lives and sometimes there's people in our church family that are hard to love and people who make mistakes and people who frustrate us. And You and I are called to love what our Savior loves. So God, could we leave this place not just having learned something, could we leave this place living something new in our lives? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you guys. Thanks for being here.